We are in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Not sure how far we will get. We'll find out. When the average person, person attending the church in what I'm going to call any town USA, when that person walks through the doors, if there is one common perception just across the board, I believe, it is that the church of any town USA is, the, the perception is, is that the church is flush with workers to carry on all the aspects of ministry that that person has come to expect. doesn't matter what size of church that I've visited, and I have visited churches of over 5,000 people. It seems like there's a never-ending plea for more help, more workers. What surprises me is that over the years, the expectations that the people of the church of any town USA have are more along the lines of the expectations one probably would rightly have of a healthy, thriving business in corporate America. And what I mean by this is that whatever that particular company is established to do, they are adequately staffed, relatively well-trained, Everyone knows their role in the organization, and if the person you're talking to at the moment in that organization doesn't have the answer, they know exactly to whom you need to be forwarded in order to get you the answer that you need. Once satisfied, the customer is king or queen, so the mission of the business is to make the customer happy because they want their return business. And they want them to tell their friends about the great service, about the great quality, about the value and the attention that they received in their experience with that particular company. Honestly, while there are many similarities with business and the Church of Anytown USA, there are also enormous differences. One difference is that the mission of the corporation is accomplished by a full complement of workers. Workers who are remunerated, that means paid for their service. And at the end of the day, the company's future, and then of course the worker's future by extension, depends on the combined success of all of those workers fulfilling the expectations of the ones that they serve called customers. The workers are paid to be motivated. And they are paid to be committed. They're paid to be competent and concerned and caring of all the customer's needs, whether they actually feel that way or not. Now, what I want to do, I want you to park that for a moment, and I want to transport us back a couple of thousand years ago to a time in the church of any town Eurasia meaning Europe, Asia. One of the biggest names, arguably the biggest name in Christendom, has been making visits to the churches of any town Eurasia. And he's going there and he's been trumping along, encouraging them, challenging them at times, read the book of Corinthians in particular, scolding them. But in this letter to the church of Philippi, the Apostle Paul has been more candid about his personal relationship with the Philippian believers than any church that he visits or writes. 
And his last comment before he changes gears now in his writing yet again is that even if the Apostle Paul himself is, in his words, if he's poured out as a drink offering on their behalf, nonetheless, he is grateful to be able to share his joys in the Lord with them. Now, the drink offering was an offering of wine that accompanied other offerings. It was poured on the altar of sacrifice, being emblematic of sacrificial blood being poured out or being spilled. The intent of the drink offering is to be a stark reminder of how ultimate the sacrifice for sins would be. Paul uses this picture, this allusion, to underscore the level of sacrifice that he has himself been doing and been on in their behalf. Paul uses such dramatic words here, and it's about as close as he ever gets to reminding the Philippian believers of just exactly how much it has cost him, how much he has given of himself in the cause of their spiritual development. What's remarkable is that just for this fleeting moment here, it's about the only time that Paul really spends any time at all alluding to what he has personally given up for their sakes. And even in that, he uses it only to say that if I can rejoice in my current circumstances, which, remind you, were lousy, so can you. And in fact, I expect you to. Now, as Paul starts the next pericope, he shifts to a focus on Timothy. Timothy, one of his co-workers with whom the Philippian believers were already familiar, and Paul is sending him ahead of what at this moment anyway is an iffy arrival of Paul himself. Remember, Paul is not free to come and go. Remember, he's been under house arrest by the governing authorities of Rome, having stirred things up by proclaiming the truth of the Savior of the world. Now, many years ago, In my days of what I will call very adolescent faith, what Paul writes here to Timothy, or about Timothy, stopped me in my tracks. And again, this was long, long before ever any any, uh, uh, idea about going into pastoral ministry. My mind and heart and and education were all going in an entirely different direction. And yet this passage stopped me in my tracks, and so taken aback was I by what Timothy says I committed it to memory. He says, I'm sending Timothy to you because I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for their welfare, for I have no one else. They all seek after their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. I thought, boy, that's that's a strong statement there, one that I never would have expected. So what is Paul saying here? Well, remember, first of all, that Paul is no ordinary, if I can. I mean, he's ordinary in a lot of ways, but I think you'll see what I, what I mean here. Paul's not ordinary in the sense that he's not a fickle faith, half in, meaning half in his commitment to the Lord, half out of his commitment. He's not that kind of a Christian. He is sold out, and obviously his life is showing that. So, thinking about that, wouldn't someone of Paul's caliber, wouldn't someone of Paul's caliber 
have the reputation? Wouldn't he have the following? Wouldn't people be eager to jump in line just to be called upon by the Apostle Paul? Wouldn't he have the notoriety or the clout to have an enormous pool of colleagues at his disposal? Again, people who would be eager to be part of what the Lord is doing through this extraordinary man? Let me bring it home a little let me bring it a little closer to home here to see what I'm saying. Think of it this way, okay? Let's say Ravi Zacharias is coming to town in 2016. Let's say that because by the way he is. More information on that later on. There you go. He really is coming in 2016. Make note of it. He's coming to Bangor. But let's say that Ravi now in preparation of his coming, he gets on the phone and he starts calling all the churches in the area of central Maine, from Bangor down to Waterville, all the way, say, down to Portland and out to Lewiston, he himself is making phone calls because he knows what it takes to pull something like this off. And he's trying to solicit all the help that's going to be required. So many hundreds of people needed to pull off this weekend ministry. And what he hears in returns from all of his calls are crickets chirping on the other end. Well, I said way back in those days when I came across this verse, I said to myself, self, remember Paul's words back in verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but for those of others. The people with a heart for others are few and far between, truth be told. And this is why I get blown away. I get blown away when I witness firsthand and when I hear stories secondhand of people in this church giving up a precious free Saturday to go and cut and stack someone's wood or to help a lame pastor move a couple tons of pellets into his shed or to show up on Sunday mornings week after week to give their time to the children or those ministering to those hurting in the worst ways, or making meals or visiting someone laid up and out of commission due to illness or injury. It is not a common element of human nature to give of one's self. And here is the great apostle himself sharing, I have no one else of kindred spirit like that of Timothy. Timothy was a man after Paul's own heart. He was a man whom Paul could depend on to care for the Philippian believers as Paul himself did. And apparently the church knew that as well. Paul writes in verses 22 and 23, You know of Timothy's proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things Go with me. Hmm. Paul's a man of few words when it comes, again, to his personal trials. But we know that his brief reference here is referring to his fate concerning his disposition before the Roman government, which was entirely up in the air. What could happen, what stands before him, are basically three possibilities. The first possibility is he could be released with no further ado. 
Paul, that's it. We're tired of it. Get out of here. Go. Leave. Stamp. The second possibility is that he could remain imprisoned with no further ado. The third possibility is that he could be executed. <laughs> you remember his angst earlier in this letter about the, those possibilities that are before him and everything being, being up in the air? What does he write? Does he write a letter to all the churches saying, oh, please, start play, praying. Start praying to the Lord on my behalf. Oh, please, 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 let me live, Lord. Deliver me from these evil Roman rulers. Nope. What Paul says is, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. <laughs> to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So how could Paul be so flip about such an ultimate issue? Well, part of the reason, and only part, but a significant part, is that followers of Christ back in the day, used to know and used to believe what James wrote in his book, chapter 4, verse 4, saying, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, which means the opposite was also true. In other words, persecution was expected. Let's think about Stephen. Stephen isn't exactly a household name when you think about the Bible. If I were to do a survey right now, the people in here about, tell me who Stephen is. Just in the broadest of terms or where he might appear in the Bible, probably the majority couldn't. I understand that. This isn't chiding anybody. I'm just saying Stephen's not just a big household name out there when it comes to the Bible because he appears so uh, briefly. But why does he appear? Well, in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, Stephen preaches what is your classic, nice, happy, appealing prosperity message to the crowds. Yeah, no. Stephen's sermon in chapter 7 is the longest sermon on record in the New Testament by far. And what he does in that sermon is he basically gives an overview of the entire Old Testament, showing and telling to the people who he's talking to about God's personal interaction and intervention into the affairs of man to bring about his plan of redemption. And Stephen's point in that to the people that he's talking to is to show how clearly you, you people listening, rejected not just a moment here or a moment there or a little epicure, a prophet speaking out here, but how they had missed centuries of the history of the acts of God concerning the advent of the coming Redeemer, Savior, Messiah. It runs basically 51 verses, which goes for several pages. I'll not read that recap. What I will read is at the very end, verses 51 and 52. This is how he concludes this wonderful, happy-go-lucky, rainbows and unicorns message. This is an evangelistic outreach. This is an evangelistic outreach. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your heart, I'll talk about more of that lady ah, later. Wow, is that a slap in the face? Not to mention other things. Wow, never mind. 
and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Now, hang on. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Now, I'm going to invite you all to come forward who want to receive Jesus as Savior. Hmm. Golly, why was Stephen stoned? <laughs> this obviously was not Pack-A-Pew Sunday with Brother Love's Traveling Salvation Show. For all you older folks there, an homage to Neil Diamond. Young people are going, what kind of diamond? Never mind. Did Stephen get praises, attaboys, and amens? He got stoned. Now, I don't know what you think stoning is, okay? Right? doesn't mean they were flicking pellets at him like marbles. Okay, it was a matter, it was a means of torturous execution. And basically anybody who wanted to be involved could join in, throwing rocks, taking boulders, and shot putting boulders to hit wherever they happened to hit and land. It was a very slow, usually torturous way to die. Verses 59 and 60. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, as this is happening, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. What would you cry out? I don't want to think about what I would cry out. He cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, Euphemistically speaking, he fell asleep. One of the greatest differences between the followers of Christ in the early stages of the church and those of the 21st century in North America in particular, I do want to isolate that, is the expectation of what following Jesus would bring. They counted the cost, figuring, planning, expecting that standing for Jesus wasn't going to bring them riches or comfort or favor with the culture, but was more likely to bring them hardship, deprivation, and death. But even with that, the reason they were given life at all was to serve Christ, however long or short that might be. And if or when they died in that process, to die, after all, is gain. It wasn't the end. It was the beginning. And they believed that. They staked their life on it. So there's Stephen, the latest of Jesus' followers to be executed by stoning, precisely because his speech was offensive. And it was offensive because it was all true. Paul leaves all possibilities about his fate now 
entirely in the hands of the Lord. And yet, it seems like he might be tipping his hand here. Or maybe it's just hopeful thinking when in verse 24 he writes, And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. It was all up in the air, but he's just expressing his desire and is hopeful, not guaranteed, not assured, his hopeful desire that he would be with the Philippians shortly, meaning he was hoping he would be released. For him to live as Christ, to die as gain. You might remember the angst that, that took place back when he said that. And he's saying, you know what, I'm sitting here weighing the options here. To stay on, meaning living, yeah, it's better for you guys. The Philippians and all the other churches, it's better for you because the Lord, you know, has been using me in big, powerful ways. There, so I understand that. So if that's the way it goes, okay, because for me to live as Christ. On the other hand, to get rid of this rat hole and to go home into eternity, yeah. That's a pretty good ending. So he's betwixt in between, but he's the servant sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was hoping to continue serving the churches. Well, Timothy apparently was cut from this same basic fabric as Paul. And Paul is psyched about sending him to this church as his go-before, as his, as his front-runner, sort of a goodwill ambassador. But Paul's desire in verse 24 are that the verdict again will come down from on high and Paul himself will be able to visit his peeps sometime in the near future. His peeps at Philippi. From the Greek word, pipionomai. I don't know. No, don't scratch that, Ben. Sorry. So in the meantime, Paul thought it necessary to send another individual named Epaphroditus, to send him actually back to the church at Philippi because Epaphroditus was initially sent out by the church at Philippi, sent to Paul on an errand or on a mission for the church. And what was that errand or mission? You start to see why Paul really loved the Philippians. Because they sent Epaphroditus to Paul to take the special offering sorts that they received at their church to Paul to help meet his needs while he was incarcerated. Having received those gifts from this church, Paul tells them in verses 25 through 30, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all, and he was distressed. Now get this. Think again, of, don't think of yourselves only, but for the needs of the other. Just listen to the wording. We can so skip over a lot of this important stuff. Who is also your messenger and minister to my need because he was longing for you all and he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. He's distressed that they're distressed that he is sick. Oh, God. hey, you know, it's only a sickness. I'm probably going to die, but I don't want you guys worrying about that. Gee. For indeed, he was sick, and he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I've sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. 
Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking or deficient in your service to me. Well, all right, through verse 30. Now that all the backslapping is done, all the attaboys and congratulatings of the Philippians and what a great church they were and everything else. And what seems to be for Paul, as we go along here even more so, it seems to be like Paul writes in a stream of consciousness, just, okay, one more thing, boom. Okay, yeah, switching gears, boom. Okay, not another thing, boom. He shifts gears yet again to address another issue, which, as we'll see, apparently is a standing issue with this church. In a rather terse warning, this is what Paul writes in chapter 3, now verses 1 and 2. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. So he's writing about this again. He expressly mentions that. So apparently he's warned this church in the past about those preaching, what Paul uses in uh, to some of the other churches, what he calls another or a different gospel. And the ones in Paul's sights here now understand that these are not just some fly-by-night wingnuts claiming to be the Christ, which... Today, that seems really out there and few and far between. But in this day, there were, there were not, not an insignificant number of people who are springing up almost weekly of saying, Oh, no, I'm Jesus. I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. Here we are. But that's not even who he's addressing. He's addressing in his sights are the respected, high-profile religious leaders of his day. And of what religion? Well, obviously of Judaism. Or, to be fair, their brand of Judaism. And Paul tells the Philippian believers to watch out for these misguided, deluded, ensnared, well-meaning, but ill-informed victims. Right? He's being very sensitive, very gentle. Now, that's not what he says. In case you missed it earlier. He says, beware of the dogs. He wasn't referring to the dogs running wild. He's referring to the religious leaders, the Pharisees. Beware of the evil workers, referring to the same people. And beware of the flesh mutilators. Oh, our translations clean it up to false circumcision. Flesh mutilators. This was about as derogatory as you could be to a Jew, not to, not to uh, mention the leaders of what was, again, Judaism of that day. What I find interesting here is that Paul is rather controlled at this point in the letter, having written the bulk of his letter already, most of which, as we've seen over the weeks, is quite glowing and it's upbeat. And so the reason I say this is that it's unlikely that he's just kind of flying off the handle in an impassioned rant 
as the Apostle Paul does at times. I love the Apostle Paul. I don't know why. But he does this as he did, I think, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, as he does to the Galatians in chapter 3 when he started out. You foolish Galatians. And he just escalates and goes ballistic. But on the heels of talking about Christian conduct, which we talked about last week, when he's talking about writing to the Philippians about Christian conduct, namely what it means to be acting like children of God in chapter 2 around verse 15, and then being lights amidst a perverse generation, Paul begins chapter 3 with scurrilous language against these very formal, very widely regarded leaders of the temple and leaders of the community. So do we conclude that Paul is just another, when you see the juxtapositioning of be lights in the midst of a perverse generation, you get to act like children of God, and all of a sudden here, man, he's just name-calling and insulting categorically. Do we conclude that Paul's just another do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do preacher, hypocrite? Do we conclude that Paul is, you know, he's just mean-spirited. Do we conclude that he's not walking in the Spirit at this point? Do we conclude that he's not very Christ-like and then chide him for not having, what did he talk about one chapter earlier, talking about the having the attitude in, in himself, which was also in Christ Jesus, verses 5 through 7 of chapter 2. If Facebook was around in the days of Paul <laughs> and he posted what he just wrote here, and he posted it to the church wall at Philippi. What kind of feedback do you think he would receive from his Christian Facebook friends? I would guess that some would reprimand Paul for being insensitive at best and more likely to accuse him of not being Christ-like and then yada yada on from there. Personally, my observation is that there is considerable misunderstanding in Christendom. Christendom means the true church, the true believing church, and all the false churches that claim to be Christian churches and all that. All the whole scope of Christendom from the, from the worst to the very best. There's considerable misunderstanding about what it means to be Christ-like. And the reason for that is because so few in Christendom know what Christ was like. Because in order to know what He's really like, you have to spend time with Him. Just like you would to get to know what anybody else is like. So let's review. Think about what I just said. Let's review some of the things about the only one in history, who was, is, and ever will be truly above reproach, namely Jesus. We're talking about what does it mean to be Christ-like. Well, I was thinking about the things that steamed the generally cool, calm, and collected Savior. Taking a kind of a broad sweep of looking at the, you know, what we know about Jesus and the history that we have recorded here for us and distilling that down. 
one thing that absolutely steamed Jesus was blaspheming that which is holy. One example of that found in Matthew, Mark, and John was the little episode at the temple, commonly referred to as the money changers in the temple. And we hear some pretty um, uninformed things about why Jesus was so angry. Well, because they were selling things at the, in the temple. I'm not even sure that that was really an issue at all, if that's what was all that was going on. The problem was this. In order for people to come and worship the living God, they had to have the proper uh, currency to pay the temple tax. tax. And so now you had the money changers. They would change whatever currency you brought and change it into the proper uh, currency for the temple. And, of course, they would add a significant fee on top of that to get their cut. Well, not only did they add a significant fee on top of that, but they were outright ripping people off because they knew people had to come and worship. And some people, because they were so poor, worked a hardship or were prevented from worshiping. That's why Jesus was steamed. But the always sensitive, always delicate, always dainty Jesus, always unfortunately emasculated, feminized Jesus in our culture, Apparently, Dankily walked into the temple and said, Hey, fellas, look, come on, would you, I hate to do this, but would you mind kind of taking yourself and maybe moving outside and realize that this is what the temple tax is and start charging, okay, a reason, really? I mean, would you, would you do me a big favor in that? That's not what Jesus did. The Prince of Peace took flog something to flog and with a scourge and he began screaming and yelling and whipping the money changers and kicking over the tables and throwing the money all over the place and literally beating them out of the temple the always sensitive gentle tender spirited prince of peace oh oh well but that's not the jesus i worship exactly okay second thing that used to get Jesus steamed was someone stumbling, using the language of the, of the Scripture, stumbling a child. Now, there's all, it's recorded in Matthew and Mark. You could view this in the context. It had to do basically with stumbling a little one in leading them astray concerning who the living God is. Think about that. When you think about all the Sunday schools in Christendom that are teaching categorically a perverse and different gospel than this one. Because Jesus didn't say, oh, they're just ill-informed, we need to pray for them. He said, the one who stumbles a little child, I wish that they would be taken out and a millstone hung around their neck and dropped into the sea. The always tender, sensitive Prince of Peace. The third thing that steamed Jesus were, I struggled for the, what they call them, religionists, meaning religious people, or in our day, spiritual people, leading people away from God's truth for a counterfeit. We saw some of Jesus, uh, sorry, that was the Apostle Paul. Never mind, scratch that. Let me read you Matthew 23. Oh, boy, this is a long passage. 13 to 33. I'll read it very quickly. Um, this isn't up here. 
when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism. Now, just think about this, okay? Think, put yourself in this scenario. You have people who are wayward, and they are deluded. They need the living Savior. In our day today, it's like Christians get offended when somebody calls people like that to account and gets harsh with them and tries to warn them to flee from the wrath that's to come. So, but... You know, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God, and there's usually always a, a, a conglomeration of those two mixed together. So let's look at the perfect example when he saw Jesus, when Jesus saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism. That's a good thing. No, it isn't. Jesus said to them, you brood of vipers. That's not a compliment, in case you didn't know. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Why are you here? Therefore, he knew exactly what their problem was. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Now, he's sitting there saying, if you think you're going to fall back on your Jewish haunches because you are the religious spiritual elites of the day and that's how you are going to be accepted before God, you would better flee for your lives. From the fires of hell. It was Matthew 3, 7 through 9. I had to skip the passage in Matthew, sorry. It's, it's, it's just a piling up of Jesus' reaction to the Pharisees and the very pointed, scurrilous things Jesus had to say to the false religious leaders of the day. Part of the church's issues today. And part of the reason for this whole thing about getting upset when anybody calls anybody to account. Pastor Bill, you spent almost two chapters on Joel Osteen in your book. Mm. Yeah, I should have spent five. I was being sensitive. But here's the issue. Is that there has been a gradual loss of holy anger or righteous indignation in the North American church. Simply defined what that is, it's getting angry about the same things that Jesus got angry about. Paul's name-calling here is name-calling with a purpose accentuating the despicable, the deplorable, the intolerable danger people are who think they are so full of virtue and goodness and yet are utterly lost and they take every advantage they can using their place of prestige in the culture leading many to a Christless eternity. Think about all the different venues, and I'm not talking about just churches, sports fans. I'm talking about virtually every cultural uh, venue you can think of, not the least of which is public education today. Oh, hmm. Yeah, oh, hmm, yourself. If that doesn't get, meaning the things that get Jesus angry, that get God angry, if that doesn't get the Christian worked up, hear this well. I say it in love. <laughs> See? You are not being godly. You are not being Christ-like. You are being worldly or naive. Or you have not yet fathomed 
the honest-to-goodness reality of an eternity apart from the Lord of heaven. When we talk about the big social issues of the day, the social issue itself, yes, is huge and large and looming, but it's only a symptom of the person who is dying without Christ and going to die and go to hell for an eternity apart from God's saving grace and mercy. Being godly means loving the things that God loves, cheering the things that God cheers, and despising and hating and getting angry about the same things that He despises, loathes, and gets angry about. Does that make sense? Let me ask you to stand. Could I see, uh, would you mind, you're like, you're raising your hand. Don't ask me to raise my hand. Would you raise your hand if you want to make a donation to me? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you're like, ah, what? Someone first time in the church, what did he just say? No, if you, seriously, Thanksgiving is obviously this week. Would you raise your hand if you are mourning the loss of someone near and dear to you that will only be punctuated and accentuated this Thanksgiving. Would you do that for me? Oh, yeah, there's so many people. See, I mean, this is the reality of life. Great. Thank you so much. Father in heaven, look at these hands. Look at these people. I know you know their hearts. I know they didn't have to raise their hands for you to know. Lord, in your tender mercies, just let your Holy Spirit wash Wash in supernatural ways over the souls, over the hearts of all these people, O oh God. And as there's laughter and joking in other rooms of the house or around the table, they may be wearing a smile, they may even chuckle at something humorous, but their soul, Lord, is just aching and aching. I pray, O oh God, as only you can, some way, somehow, lift them above that and let the radiance of who you are fill them up, fill that empty place up and just comfort them with your loving, tender mercies. In your name, we give thanks. Amen.